Hello, my darling, and welcome to our Valentine's special. I feel that horror stories tend to complement lovey-dovey holidays, so I have chosen The Vampire Maid by Hugh Nisbet, written in 1900. So relax, close your eyes, and enjoy the rain while I read to you our Valentine's story. It was the exact kind of abode that I had been looking for after weeks, for I was in that condition of mind when absolute renunciation of society was a necessity. I had become diffident of myself and wearied of my kind. A strange unrest was in my blood, a barren dearth in my brains. Familiar objects and faces had grown distasteful to me. I wanted to be alone. This is the mood which comes upon every sensitive and artistic mind when the possessor has been overworked or living too long in one groove. It is nature's hint for him to seek new pastures, the sign that a retreat has become needful. If he does not yield, he breaks down and becomes whimsical, hypochondrical, as well as hypercritical. It is always a bad sign when a man becomes overcritical and censorious about his own or other people's work, for it means he is losing the vital portions of work, freshness, and enthusiasm. Before I arrived at the dismal stage of criticism, I hastily packed up my knapsack, and taking the train to Westmoreland, I began my tramp in search of solitude, bracing air and romantic surroundings. Many places I came upon during that early summer appeared to have almost the required conditions, yet some petty drawback prevented me from deciding. Sometimes it was the scenery that I did not take kindly to. At other places, I became suddenly critical of the landlady or landlord, and I felt I would abhor them before a week was spent under their charge. Other places which might have suited me I could not have, as they did not want a lodger. Fate was driving me to this cottage on the moor, and no one can resist destiny. One day I found myself on a wide and pathless moor near the sea. I had slept the night before at a small hamlet, but that was already eight miles in my rear, and since I had turned my back upon it, I had not seen any signs of humanity. I was alone with a fair sky above me, a balmy, ozone-filled wind blowing over the stony, and heather-clad mounds, and nothing to disturb my meditations. 
I had provisions in my knapsack, and, being young, did not fear a night under the stars. I was inhaling the delicious summer air and once more getting back the vigor and happiness I had lost. My city-dried brains were again becoming juicy. Thus, hour after hour slid past me with the paces until I had covered about 15 miles since morning. All of a sudden, I saw before me in the distance a solitary stone-built cottage with a roughly slated roof. I'll camp here if possible, I said to myself, and I quickened my steps towards it. To one in search of a quiet, free life, nothing could have possibly been more suitable than this cottage. It stood on the edge of a lofty cliff, with its front door facing the moor and the backyard wall overlooking the ocean. The sound of the dancing waves struck upon my ears like a lullaby. I drew closer. How they would thunder when the autumn gales came on and the seabirds fled, shrieking to the shelter of the sedges. A small garden spread in front, surrounded by a dry stone wall just high enough for one to lean lazily. This garden was the flame of color, scarlet predominating, with those other soft shades that cultivated poppies take on in their blooming, for this was all that the garden grew. As I approached, Taking notice of this singular assortment of poppies and the orderly cleanliness of the windows, the front door opened. A woman appeared who impressed me at once favorably as she leisurely came along the pathway to the gate, and she drew it back as if to welcome me. She was of middle age, and when young, must have been remarkably good-looking. She was tall and still shapely, with smooth, clear skin, regular features, and a calm expression that at once gave me a sensation of rest and peace. To my inquiries, she said that she could give me both a sitting and bedroom, and invited me inside to see them. As I looked at her smooth black hair, cool brown eyes. I felt that I would not be too particular about this accommodation. With such a landlady, I was sure to find what I was after here. The room surpassed my expectation. Dainty white curtains and bedding with perfume of lavender about them. A sitting room, homely yet cozy, without being crowded. With a sigh of infinite relief, I flung down my knapsack and clinched the bargain. She was a widow with one daughter, whom I did not see the first day, as she was unwell and confined to her own room. But on the next day, she was somewhat better, and then we met. The fare was simple, 
Yet it suited me exactly for the time. Delicious milk and butter with homemade scones. Fresh eggs and bacon. After a hearty tea, I went to bed in a condition of perfect content with my quarters. Yet happy and tired out as I was, I had by no means a comfortable night. This I put down to the strange bed. I slept, certainly, but my sleep was filled with dreams so that I woke late and unrefreshed. A good walk on the moor, however, restored me, and I returned with a fine appetite for breakfast. Certain conditions of the mind, with aggravating circumstances, are required before even a young man can fall in love at first sight, as we learned from Shakespeare in his Romeo and Juliet. In the city, where many fair faces passed me every hour, I had remained like a stoic. Yet no sooner did I enter the cottage after that morning walk that I succumbed instantly to the weird charms of my landlady's daughter, Adrienne Brunel. She was somewhat better this morning and able to meet me at breakfast, for we had our meals together while I was their lodger. Adrienne was not beautiful in the strictly classical sense. Her complexion was too lividly white, and her expression too set to be quite pleasant at first sight. Yet, as her mother had informed me, she had been ill for some time, which accounted for that defect. Her features were not regular, her hair and eyes seemed too black, her skin too strangely white, and her lips far too red for any except the decadent harmonies of an Aubrey Beardsley. Yet my fantastic dreams of the preceding night, with my morning walk, had prepared me to be enthralled by this modern poster-like invalid. The loneliness of the moor with the singing of the ocean had gripped my heart with a wistful longing. The incongruity of these flaunting and evanescent poppy flowers, dashing the giddy tints in the face of that sober heath, touched me with a shiver as I approached the cottage. And lastly, that weird embodiment of startling contrasts completed my subjugation. She rose from her chair as her mother introduced her, and smiled while she held out her hand. I clasped that soft snowflake, and as I did so, a faint thrill tingled over me and rested on my heart. For a moment, my heart stopped beating. This contact seemed also to have affected her as it did me. A clear flush, like a white flame, lighted up her face. It began to glow as if an alabaster lamp had been lit. Her black eyes became softer, more humid, 
Her glances crossed multiple times. Her scarlet lips grew moist. She was a living woman now, while before she had seemed half a corpse. She permitted me her white, slender hand to remain in mine longer than most people do. And then she slowly withdrew it, still regarding me with steadfast eyes for a second afterwards. Fathomless, velvety eyes these were, yet before they were shifted from mine, they appeared to have absorbed all of my willpower and made me her abject slave. Her eyes looked like deep, dark pools of clear water, yet they filled me with fire, and they deprived me of strength. I sank into my chair almost languidly as I had risen from my bed that morning, yet I made a good breakfast, and although she hardly tasted anything, this strange girl rose, much refreshed, and with a slight glow of color in her cheeks. This improved her so greatly that she appeared younger, almost beautiful. I had come here seeking solitude, but since I had seen Adrienne, it seemed as if I had come here for her and her alone. She was not very lively. Indeed, thinking back, I cannot recall any spontaneous remark of hers. She answered my questions by monosyllables and left me to lead in words. Yet, she was insinuating and appeared to lead my thoughts in her direction. And she seemed to speak to me with her eyes. I cannot describe her minutely. I only know that from the first glance and touch she gave me, I was bewitched, and I could think of nothing else. It was a rapid, distracting, and devouring infatuation that possessed me. All day long, I followed her about like a dog. Every night I dreamed of that white glowing face those steadfast black eyes, those moist scarlet lips. And each morning, I rose more languid than I had the day before. Sometimes I dreamt that she was kissing me with her red lips, and I shivered at the contact of her silky black tresses as I covered my throat. Sometimes I dreamed that we were floating in the air, her arms about me, her long hair enveloping us both like an inky cloud, while I lay supine and helpless. She went with me after breakfast on that first day to the moor, and before we came back, I had spoken my love and received her assent. I held her in my arms and had taken her kisses in answer to mine. Nor did I think it strange that all this happened so quickly. 
was mine, or rather, I was hers, without a pause. I told her it was fate that had sent me to her, for I had no doubts about my love, and she replied that I had restored her to life. Acting upon Adrian's advice, and also from natural shyness, I did not inform her mother how quickly matters had progressed. Yet, although we both acted as circumspectly as possible, I had no doubt Mrs. Brunel could see how engrossed we were in each other. Lovers are not unlike ostriches in their modes of concealment. I was not afraid of asking Mrs. Brunel for her daughter for she already showed her partiality towards me, and she had bestowed upon me some confidences regarding her own position in life. Therefore, I knew that, so far as social position was concerned, there could be no real objection to our marriage. They lived in this lonely spot for the sake of their health, and they kept no servant because they could not get any to take service so far away from humanity. My coming had been opportune and welcome to both mother and daughter. For the sake of decorum, however, I resolved to delay my confession for a week and to trust to some favorable opportunity of doing it discreetly. Meantime, Adrian and I passed our time in a thoroughly idle and lotus-eating style. Every night, I retired to bed with a light meditation, but every morning, I rose languid from those disturbing dreams with no thought for anything outside my love. She grew stronger every day, while I appeared to be taking her place as the invalid. Yet I was more frantically in love with her than ever, and only happy when with her. She was my lone star, my joy, my life. We did not go great distances, for I liked best to lie on the dry heat and to watch her glowing face, her intense eyes, and I would listen to the surging of the distant waves. It was love made me lazy, I thought. Unless a man has all he longs for beside him, he is apt to copy the domestic cat and bask in the sunshine. I had been enchanted quickly but my disenchantment came as rapidly, although it was long before the poison left my blood. One night, about a week after coming to the cottage, I had returned after a delicious moonlight walk with Adrian. The night was warm, the moon at the full, and I had left my bedroom window open to let in what little air there was. I was more than usually tired, with strength enough to remove my boots and coat before 
where I flung myself wearily on the coverlet. I had fallen almost instantly asleep without tasting the nightcap draught that was constantly placed on my table and which I had always drained thirstily. I had a ghastly dream that night. I thought I saw a monster bat with the face and tresses of Adrian. It flew into the open window and fastened its white teeth and scarlet lips on my arm. I tried to beat the horror away, but could not. I seemed chained down and thralled also with drowsy delight as the beast sucked my blood with gruesome rapture. I looked out dreamily and saw a line of dead bodies of young men lying on the floor, each with a red mark on their arms, on the same part where the vampire was then sucking me. And I remembered having seen and wondered at such a mark on my own arm for this past fortnight. In a flash, I understood the reason for my strange weakness, and at the same moment, a sudden prick of pain roused me from my dreamy pleasure. In her eagerness, the vampire had bitten a little too deeply that night, unaware that I had not tasted the drugged draught. As I woke, I saw her fully revealed by the midnight moon, her black tresses flowing loosely, her red lips glued to my arm. With a shriek of horror, I dashed her backwards, getting one last glimpse of her savage eyes, her glowing white face, her blood-stained red lips. I rushed out into the night, moved on by my fear and hatred, and I did not pause in my mad flight until I had left miles between me and that accursed cottage on the moor. The end. Happy Valentine's Day, my darling. Have sweet.